Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Short summer break for me. Uh, enjoyed my uh, my time away from the microphone a little bit. That's a absolutely a lie. I've been uh, dying to get somebody back on the show, and today joining me. I have retired LAPD detective Moses Castillo, uh, he himself a podcast host. I'm sure we'll be getting into that later on in the episode. Uh, Moses, how are things out in California? Hot. The weather is hot, <laughs> but um, overall things are pretty well, other than the challenges we're facing with our local elected officials here, which I'm sure we'll probably uh, touch on. Oh, absolutely. Over- overall, we're doing pretty good. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Uh, And congratulations, sir, on your retirement. Moses, uh, 30 years uh, as a police officer, um, my my immediate thought comes to mind um, before we get into anything, man, is uh, looking back on 30 years, do you have any uh, sage words of wisdom or uh, or pieces of advice for uh, for the new crowd? Yes, always do your best to make the people you, you come in contact with, your victims, your witnesses, even your suspects, believe it or not, make them feel like they are the most important case you are investigating because in doing so, you're going to get great results because if you make them feel like you do care and you care about what's happened to them, uh, they're going to give you the best cooperation. Therefore, you're going to get the best information and the best results for them moving forward. You don't ever make them any promises that you cannot keep, such as getting the results that we all want. We always, I've seen some uh, officers or detectives promise them, hey, we got this guy, he's in a little prison for a long time. Don't make those kind of promises because you just never know the outcome. So again, I would say always make them feel like you are investigating the most important case. uh, And uh, therefore, makes them feel like they're not just a number, they're not just a stat, but they are real people with real life experiences, suffered sometimes uh, very tragic situations. So that would be my advice for you. I couldn't agree more. One thing as a uh, as a new detective that I had to learn is uh, it, it can be difficult. I don't know if it's going to get any easier, but it can be really difficult to, to look in the eyes of this victim and tell them that, that hey, there may not be any any recourse for this. The, uh, the person who did this to you is out of state, out of country, uh, can't be found. We have no, uh, corroborating evidence, you know, things of that nature. But I, I strongly believe, uh, that, that people, uh, don't want to be bullshitted, that people, uh, appreciate when you are, uh, truthful with them, uh, and, and being honest, um, uh, right. Just as you said it, um, like one thing I always tell people when I interview them is, Hey, I'm going to be straight with you if you're going to be straight with me. Um, and I think that helps that goes a long way towards, as you said, they don't, they don't want to be just a, they don't want to be just a case number. You know, they want to be, um, you know, they, they want to be the person that they are and they want you to recognize who they are. So it little, little humanity can go a long way. Absolutely. Um, well, before we jump in uh, any further, uh, I was listening to, uh, Moses's, uh, uh, podcast, the blue line, um, uh, and, and we're going to get into that, but his latest episode he had on, uh, Randy Sutton, uh, who is the founder of the wounded blue, uh, nonprofit organization. So shout out to the wounded blue, find them on Instagram, uh, and go and check out their website. And they've got some upcoming conferences. You can buy tickets directly from their website. Uh, the, the long and short of it, I will be reaching out to Randy to bring him onto this show, but the long and short of it 
50,000 officers a year are injured or killed in the line of duty. Um, and the wounded blue seeks to uh, sort of right the wrongs as, as some of those officers, uh, agency dependent, but some of those officers kind of get left in the dust uh, by their departments, by the, the, uh, the cities or counties uh, or, or organizations that they work for. And so the wounded blue seeks to, to take care of the injured officers uh, all across this country. It's not, uh, not stuck with one agency or, or one jurisdiction, uh, but all over the country. So again, I'm not doing them any justice, but go and check out the wounded blue on Instagram. Um, and, uh, and rest assured, I will be reaching out to Randy to bring him onto the show. They're up in, uh, up in Vegas. So might, might give me an excuse. To, to drive up to Las Vegas and uh, and and hell Moses, I have a flag in here that uh, that every guest has to sign. So uh, I'm going to have to drive out to California and have you sign the flag. I hope you're okay with that. Uh, I promise, well, <laughs> promise well, to give you a heads up when I show up on your doorstep. Well, no worries. That's awesome. Yes. And by the way, I already booked my room and bought my ticket for that conference. It's happening October uh, 28th through the 30th, I believe it is. Um, but they could learn more at the Wounded blue.org that's their website and uh, i look forward to meeting you and uh, uh meeting randy there as well that'll be awesome absolutely i think it's um uh, i've got to check my schedule and uh, and most importantly check with the boss the wife but make sure that uh uh see if i can't get up there uh, uh there, there at the end of october the watch commander i get it yeah yeah man the watch commander <laughs> i'm gonna have to put that on the front of the hood of her car just like it is at our agency <laughs> yeah yeah so, uh, so Moses, you spent 30 years uh, in the LAPD uh, as as somebody who is from California. I, I grew up a little bit in Orange County uh, and and wanting to be a cop. Um, I'm sure that that, you know, if you're growing up as a kid on the East Coast and you want to be a cop, you probably want to join the NYPD or Boston or, or something like that. But growing up on the West Coast, man, I always wanted to be an LAPD officer and an LAPD homicide detective. That was my sort of uh, uh, little life goal I had at, you know, the ripe old age of, I don't know, 10 or 12, whatever. Um, what, uh, what is it that drew you in to, uh, to the calling that is law enforcement? You know, for me, it was my experience as a very young child. I was about, uh, second or third grade when I grew up in a home with a single mom and, uh, two older sisters, uh, 10 years difference. Uh, and in East Los Angeles, the inner city, and my home was right next door was a gang house. And uh, the, the L.A. County deputy sheriffs were responsible to patrol our area. And it was, I would always see this one deputy sheriff patrolling my neighborhood. And, you know, the sheriffs during the day, they, they, they drive uh, owl cars, you know, single, single deputy cars. And so this guy, he looked like, uh, Clark Kent in uniform. He had the the Superman haircut, the uh, nice part here to the side, the glasses. He was strong. He was buff. I literally, as a kid, I thought he was Superman. He he just just had that look about him. One day, he, uh, he responded to our our home because our car was stolen from within our garage. And so when he came to our home, I saw him up front and you know up up close and personal. And I was like, wow. And he took the information. And then two days later, uh, we get a call like at four o'clock in the morning that uh, they found the car and they had somebody in custody and they wanted me to translate to my mom, you know, who only spoke Spanish and ask them if, if, you know, my mom had given this guy permission to drive. And of course I said no. And in my mind, 
I thought it was this Superman de- uh, deputy who actually found the guy. And I go, wow, that was cool. You know, he, he cut the bad guy, put him away. So that, I think that was my, where the seed was planted, where I wanted to be part of the community, solve, you know, some of the issues, some of the problems that the community's facing, attack the gang violence. And growing up, I had an option. Do I become a gang member or do I obey my mom and show respect and honor towards my mom? And there's two things I feared most, most uh, growing up in East Los Angeles. That was the gang and my mom. And uh, so out of, uh, you know, my mom did the right thing and uh, raised the best she could. And uh, here we are. Uh, it's, it was a great life. And, but that was, for me, the beginning of, wanting to become a police officer and you're right uh it wasn't for me just another job it wasn't just another career it was a calling and uh i'm very proud uh, that i served the community for so long yeah yeah absolutely you look back i mean 30 years did, did it fly by i mean do you feel like just yesterday you were graduating the academy or was it was it sort of like a a drawn out you know i i think that the uh a buddy of mine once told me that the the days are long, but the years are fast. Do you think that that would accurately uh, describe your career? Yes, and there was a lot of ups and downs. With, you know, actually, I was a brand new police officer when the 1992 riots broke out here in Los Angeles after the Rodney King beating and the jury trial, where the officers were acquitted, and you know, chaos broke out, the civil unrest, and uh, so I have something to compare. You know what we experienced in 2020 versus what happened back in 1982 and you know it's just like the cycle repeated itself all over again but this time on a whole different level the magnitude is not even close to what we experienced back in 1992 and i've never seen it this bad and i salute every man and woman that wear that badge every day still today they show up even with all the ridicule, all the hatred, all the uh, the violence against police officers, and not only the police officers but their families. Uh, you know, I have three boys myself, and one's a teenager. And when the civil unrest broke out, he started to hear the chatter on social media, uh, TikTok. You know, all cops are bad, or all cops are bastards. And some of these folks were his own friends, and so he's like, "What? What's going on here? I've known you guys all my life, and I've never heard you say that." So. Something that we, we overlooked and forget to take into consideration is the impact that all this uh, that we're facing as law enforcement, it's also impacting our children, our families in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, as, a, as a parent, I sympathize, but I truly like I, I think that I'm extremely fortunate given that uh, I, I mean, my son's not even two years old yet, so he doesn't understand, you know, anything of what's going on. Um, uh, but for your, your sons to have to go through and, and see their friends who have probably spent time at your house, you know, growing up as kids, right. And, and they probably know that, uh, that Mr. Castillo is a, a police officer and yet here they are, uh, just, you know, shit talking, uh, simply because of some, you know, right. I, I'm all, I'm all for, um, you know, when, when a cop truly does something wrong, I'm all for calling him out, but to, to sit there and lump every cop into the same, um, you know, the category. same, the same category in the same group. Exactly. And, and especially for, you know, these kids who again, yo, yeah, Mr. Castillo's a cop. And then they turn around and go post on TikTok. Uh, all cops are bastard. And, and I think the, 
the biggest difference uh, between uh, the 92 riots, um, and I'm only looking at it from a historical perspective. I was very, very, very young when that happened. Uh, I was like my son's age when that happened. But um, from the 92 riots to today, it, it is these social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, TikTok. Um, you know, the, the kids are using it. The fucking politicians are using it. Uh, the news, right. the, you know, the news are are no longer relegated to a TV screen. They can push out whatever they want. Um, you know, everybody is essentially an amateur journalist because uh, you've all got your the camera phones that that take, uh, you know, some of these newer iPhones take better video footage than the big million dollar cameras that the movie theaters are, are using. So yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, to have been in a, in a major city through all of last year, I, I mean, I, I do live on the outskirts of, of Phoenix, but I don't, I don't think Phoenix was quite in the same category as, as Los Angeles. Um, but uh, I, I have to say, you know, a huge amount of respect goes out to, to all of my fellow police officers who are still out there uh, fighting the good fight and, uh, and going to work every day and suiting up. Absolutely. Uh, I, 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 I get called out on this because as I go through, I don't script my interviews, but I do keep notes. And if I forget to ask everybody's favorite introductory question, uh, somebody ends up, ends up coming and talking to me about it. So, uh, uh, should have asked you this about, oh, 15 minutes ago when we started, but, uh, Moses, if you could have a, uh, a drink with anybody alive or dead, who is it? And what are you drinking? You know what? That's a very good question. And I thought about it. But for me, it's going to be more than one person. Uh, first person would be my mom. My, my mother died back in February of 1991 when I was 20 years old, uh, just shy of turning 21. And I began the LAPD Academy in November of that same year of 1991. So I would love to be able to talk to her, catch her up, and introduce her to my family. You know, she never met my boys or my wife. So, you know, that's kind of, Tell her again, thank you, because uh, you, know, you raised me well and you taught me values and principles and faith in God and our Christian values. So that, that would be somebody that I would love to. And then what we're drinking would be uh, Mexican hot chocolate. It's uh, very similar to the uh, uh, mocha latte, uh, if you will. Um, so that's on a, on a personal side of my family, you know, my, um, my personal life choice, but on a professional level uh, as, as a detective, I would love to talk to all the murdered children that I uh, investigated the murder, and uh, thankfully I have a 100% uh, clearance rate where we arrested the perpetrator and, and received justice. I would love to speak to them and let them know that you know we fought for them and that we got justice for them. Absolutely. And that I still, and that I still, in some cases, uh, maintained a family bond with their surviving family members, and it's just so beautiful to see that when I first met them in the darkest time in their life, and and still see them now years later, that they are thriving. They are, I'm sure they have some really bad days, and they have some good days, and obviously they'll never be able to fully recover. There's no such thing as closure to these families, but when they see that uh, I still keep in contact with them and we you know, exchange Christmas cards and uh, exchange text messages uh, on the anniversaries or birthdays and stay in contact, they do appreciate that 
you know, their loved ones did matter. So I would just love to uh, let those victims know that, uh, you know, they mattered and, you know, we did fight for them and we got justice for them. My youngest victim, believe it or not, is, is just from moments of being born. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, and it, you know, goes from there. But yeah, it's just, it's just really sad. Yeah, I can't even begin to wrap my head around that as a, I'm a sex crimes detective. Um, so I, I, I have a, uh, an understanding of, of the traumatic impact on victims, but, uh, my victims are all still alive. Um, uh, whether they're, they're children or adults. Um, but to have, I mean, kids, kids truly are innocent. They, uh, they have not, I don't even really know how to put that into words, man. Um, how do you, how do you, exp- how do you explain to these kids what's happening to them? And, and I mean, yes, they're, you, you don't, these kids that are murdered, um, by, by parents or, or fa- other family members or, uh, you know, just a, a random violence on the streets. Um, but, but, uh, as, as somebody who has investigated, uh, like the, the child homicides, what, what goes through your mind, uh, when, when you're handed a case of a, of a homicide involving a child? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh man, here we go again. And this is really sad. And, uh, I would always, I would often catch myself later on after the investigation, after the arrest or whatever. I, I often, well, I was catching myself, asking myself, you know, why me? You know, why did I get this case? Why did I get to, like my worst case, I mean, my, my worst year professionally was in 2016 where I got some major heavy duty cases back to back. And that's when I started to question, you know, myself, you know, why me, why me? And, you know, I was never afraid to reach out for help. And we, thankfully, at LAPD, we have a really good support system with peer support, peer counselors, and or department psychologists that are ready. And so I reached out to one of our psychologists and, you know, to, to debrief these uh, terrible cases. And uh, when I started to share with her my, my, my thoughts about, you know, why me? Why did I get this? And then uh, she answered something that I never forget. I, I would never forget. She said, Moses, why not you? I said, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be able, I, I, I can't imagine another detective as dedicated, as caring, as passionate, as smart, uh, and, and top notch knowing, you know, how to handle these cases and how to investigate it. Why not? You, you were the perfect person for these particular cases. And that kind of gave me a sense of, wow, that, that's, I, I never really thought about it that way. So instead of kind of having a little pity party for me, then I think it's okay. I was, I was, there was a greater purpose for this that, uh, it allows me. And that's, that's my message to other detectives, all other police officers is that, there is a bigger picture to this. And, and when you first decided to become a police officer, it's because you do care. You, you have a, a care concern for your community. You have a passion to serve others, regardless of what we're going through. And that, uh, I think, helps. But, yeah, 2016, and um, if you want, I could actually dissect some of these uh, cases. But uh, they came back to back, and it was really uh, totally – and I recognized it, and it was actually – it was actually uh, uh, having an impact on my health. Uh, and, uh, but anyways, I'll, I'll 
wait for your question. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, this the simple fact, as you said, it was it was a tough year. You had those back to back cases. It, it, they, these cases negatively impacted your health, which I think is something that agencies are struggling to, uh, to work through now. I, I think that agencies are paying attention to the impact that this, uh, this, this career has on the individuals who have stepped up, uh, uh, to this, this noble profession that we do. Um, but if, if you would, yes, I, I would like to, to have you dissect those cases, um, uh, a little bit and, and that way to give the listener kind of an idea as to, uh, hey, as an LAPD detective uh, or as a as a homicide detective who's investigating these types of cases, this is this is what you're gonna what you're gonna come across, or this is what we come across. Yeah, I, definitely. If you're willing to dive in, man, I'm all ears. Sure, sure. In 2005, I began to uh, work a specialized unit known as the Abused Child Unit out of LAPD's Juvenile Division. Uh, there, we investigated crimes against children, crimes of physical abuse, sex abuse, and murder. And we also had other components, the sexually exploited child unit, where we investigate where children are being sexually exploited, uh, not related to the Internet, but through other means. And then we also have the Internet Crimes Against Children. Those handled the uh, cyber crimes that were committed against children. So I worked all those units throughout my tenure there at Juvenile Division. So as you can imagine, I've I seen a lot. But in 2016, uh, I was a supervisor overseeing a small group of detectives that worked the swing shift. So we were like the, the swing shift to uh, to respond to these incidences on the front end so that we could properly investigate these. And uh, one was a case of an 11-year-old boy who was found dead uh, in the closet in a home in Echo Park. His name is Jonathan, Jonathan Aguilar. In fact, the case is still pending uh, trial, believe it or not. So I've already vowed to come back as the detective uh, investigating officer during the trial so that uh, this guy, this victim can get uh, proper justice. But in any event, uh, when we found him there in the closet, he only weighed, uh, Kevin, he only weighed 33 pounds at 11 years old. So uh, severely malnourished, his condition, his body was, decaying while he was still alive. Uh, now, wrap your mind around that. His body was decaying while he was still alive. That's like, uh, when we first saw him, he looked like he had bruises all throughout his body, but they were not bruises. We thought he was abused, but later on the coroner's office dis- descri- uh, described those, uh, what we saw of what I just did. His body was literally decaying but he was still alive, and uh, uh, it was just a horrible way to die. He suffered a very awful death, and uh, we're still fine. So he, his mother was arrested and charged. We're past, we're past the preliminary hearing, but that happened in the, in the summer of 2016, and uh, I believe it happened in, in July, uh, or maybe June, June, July. It's beginning to be fuzzy now. But then in... Uh, in uh, in October of that same year, October 31st, actually, was uh, Halloween. Uh, another murder happened. And this is the baby Ruby. I call her baby Ruby because it was, you know, she's still a baby, although she was only, she was, she was three years old at the time. Uh, she, her parents worked at this, uh, uh, factory where they sold, uh, clothing 
So seamstress, they were seamstress. And so both mom and dad worked in this large factory and they had their own workstation. Uh, but the time came where the father had to go pick up Ruby from daycare because daycare was going to close uh, at, at you know five o'clock. So the dad had to go pick up Ruby. But he would he brought her back to their place of business, which was something they did almost every other day. Uh, and uh, before he got to the uh, to the business, to the place of business, he took her to a local store. She bought a packet of cookies. And uh, then he brought her to uh, to work. And uh, so the very first stop she does, she goes to her mom's workstation while the dad continued to his workstation, which was a few feet several uh, away from where mom was. And Ruby says uh, she opened up her, her pack, package of cookies. She gave two cookies to her mom. And she said, I'll be right back, mommy. I'm going to give a cookie to daddy. And when she goes to her dad, her very last act of her life was to give a cookie to her dad. And when she started to make her way back to her mom's workstation, another coworker who uh, was there just for about two weeks, nobody hardly ever knew him, but for unknown reasons at the time, unprovoked, he took out a knife. He had a, a like six inches uh, blade uh, knife um, and he stabbed her three times right there in front of the entire workstation, you know, all the people that were working there. As you can imagine, it went from calm to chaos in seconds. Uh, and uh, he left her there bleeding. Her mom came to her rescue and carried her and cried for help. And, you know, and, she's, and the mom was bloodied all over because the blood was dripping on her body. And the suspect fled. Uh, and uh, when that call came out, Kevin, I actually was speaking to the surviving stepfather of Jonathan Aguilar, the, the boy that I just mentioned uh, that we were investigating. And I was giving him some update on, as to the investigation as to related to DNA results. And anyways, when I heard that radio call come out on our police radio frequency, I, I, I told uh, the father, I thought, man, I just heard some things come out on the radio. I said, man, I just hope they don't call me for that one. Because it sounded so legit over the police frequency where you hear units responding, code three, and they're asking for paramedics, and they're, you know, they're giving the best description. I go, man, that sounds like a like a wild manhunt. And sure enough, I got called into that. And uh, it was Halloween night. And uh, we had everybody and their mother working this case. And I had, I had police officers come to me and say, hey, we're not going home until we get this guy. I already called my wife to cancel our Halloween plans that I'm not going to be there. And it was all hands on deck. That's, that's why I want people to know is that police officers, man, when, when things happen, they answer the bell and they're all in. And these are the same people that some of our elected officials and, and crazy activists, people, uh, are, are calling to defund and calling to abolish. I'm like, oh, really? And, so that, that's just a site that they don't hear. They don't hear these these backstory details about what's happening. And uh, so the man who was on and was the uh, was the suspect ultimately uh, captured and uh, brought to justice. Yes. So later, uh, so we were on him. Uh, we were able to get some intel, and 
we were on him, but I think he felt the heat that he decided to go to another LAPD uh, station. Uh, this actually happened in the jurisdiction of LAPD uh, area, and he actually walked in to the front desk lobby of Grand Park Station, and uh, he walked in, and uh, the officer that was working the front desk, uh, I guess you never know what you're going to get, right? guy just shows up and says, sure. here's a box. Inside the box was a gun and the knife he had used to murder. And he said, I just killed a, a three-year-old. But in Spanish, this officer didn't speak any Spanish. But thankfully, at that same moment, he was on the phone already with a Spanish-speaking dispatcher. And the dispatcher was able to uh, look up the incident that he was describing. And she connected the dots. And and uh, so this happened uh, around, uh, just shy around, uh, I'd say, 4 or 5 p.m. And by 11.30 p.m. that same night, uh, he surrendered at that Grand Park Station. And when I went to interview him, Kevin, uh, I could only say this happened to me twice. And that is, I interviewed the devil himself. He was evil and really felt like he was the devil himself. And I felt that same spirit early on in my career when I um, had this sadistic rapist. And I interviewed that person. That same spirit I felt when I interviewed that rapist, sadistic rapist, where that person talked about how he would drink the blood of the uh, the people he would uh, rape and kind of stuff and murder. Uh, this guy had that same spirit. Only detectives that, and maybe, God forbid, but if you, you'll one day maybe confront that situation, you'll probably say, man, I know what Castillo was talking about now. You, you just feel it, you sense it. And uh, I got a confession out of him. He, he told me exactly why he did what he did. He had this weird mindset that uh, he himself had a, a daughter very similar age to, to Ruby. And his daughter was removed uh, from the Department of Children's Services from him. Now, obviously, now we know why. This guy had that dangerous tendency. So he just felt that if he couldn't have his daughter, uh, this family couldn't have Ruby. Because he would see Ruby uh, on a day in, day out as, Again, she would frequent that place of business, that factory, and he just had his own mind that you know, why can they? Why why should they enjoy their daughter and I can't? And so, and he mentioned reference to the Ouija board and being Halloween. He had pre-planned this four days prior, so he was booked for premeditated murder and murder of a child and special use of a of a weapon of a knife, and he was convicted and sentenced to 37 years to life. But let me tell you. Uh, it took about two and a half years from the arrest to sentencing. And uh, I'll share something that's very personal to this. So as you can imagine, that night of the arrest, my partners and I, we worked around the clock processing the crime scene. And, you know, for a while there, we were organizing the manhunt. Uh, so there was a lot of things happening. But once the dust settled, uh, I needed to obviously write the arrest report and book some evidence. Uh, but I had told my partner to go home to get some rest. We'll finish this in the morning. I only slept about an hour, an hour and a half in my car. And then I got uh, woken up by a, a call from a social worker. Social worker uh, begins to ask me for an update on what happened with Ruby because they investigate all child fatality. Uh, but I, I began to tell the social worker that this, this wasn't uh, at the hands of uh, anybody in the home or a family member. So they really didn't need to uh, get involved in this particular case. But I asked her, well, since you, since I have you on the line, can you please 
share with me uh, Ruby's date of birth because I'm about to uh, fill out some forms and I need her date of birth. And my partner who had all the information of Ruby, uh, she's already gone for the day. Can I, can I bug you for her birthday? And she says, yes, July 17, 2013. <clears throat> Kevin, my heart dropped. That's my birthday. And uh, from that moment on, it totally changed the dynamics of the investigation for me. It, uh, it's, it's evident that, uh, you know, you come across some of these cases and they have a very lasting, uh, impact on you. Um, and I say lasting, this was just five years ago that this case happened or, uh, these back-to-back cases. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, at the small semblance of justice in that, uh, Ruby's killer was, was brought to justice, um. There, there's, there is comfort in that, but is it, is it enough? I have to imagine that you continue to ask yourself, uh, you know, hey, we got him, but but what more can can we do uh, as investigators? Um, but like like you said, I mean, there are these cases that that happen where to see your whole team, your partner. Um, any other officer that was working that case um, to, to see them set aside everything that they had going on, you know, if they were near the end of their shift or if they were uh, you know, they had family plans for that Halloween weekend and, and they just set it all aside to make sure that they got this case done and, uh, and over with um, there, there has to be uh, uh, some sense of pride uh, in, in looking at your teammates and knowing that they're not going to quit on you Um and and therein that helps you not quit on Ruby and that and that I, I commend everybody uh, uh, within your agency and you especially who uh, had to work those those heinous cases um, and and therein I mean you you talk about the the politicians and the celebrities who want to, uh, want to defund law enforcement but they either ignore or are ignorant to the work. The, the truly righteous and good work that that so many cops do um, around this country. I, I can guarantee right. uh, uh, you went into the academy in, in November of, uh, of 91, I think you said. I went into the academy in November of uh, 2016 uh, after you had already completed those two cases. But I can guarantee you that both of us uh, went into the academy wanting to uh, uphold a sense of nobility and do the very best that we could uh, within our, our chosen professions. And, and I certainly didn't know that I was going to be a sex crimes detective. I don't know if you ever imagined that you'd be investigating, uh, back to back juvenile homicides. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're, uh, if you're religious or, or if, you know, if you want to say God or the universe. Um, but, uh, but it would seem to me, Moses, just as, um, you know, just as you talked about earlier that, that you're put you're put there for a reason. Uh, you know, why me, why me? Well, why, why not you? Um, uh, oftentimes the, you're put into this situation because you are the best one to handle that situation. Uh, I just, I don't know if we see it at the time. Um, and I, again, I can only imagine that your interview with him, 
it's something that I, I get asked every now and then, especially again, I'm still, I'm a shiny new detective, right? So just shy of seven months on in my role. Um, and I can remember asking, uh, our homicide sergeant, you know, Hey man, like I'm thinking about coming up into the investigations bureau, but you know, how, how to, how do you sit across from these people and have these conversations? Um, and I, I still have yet to have some of those more difficult conversations, um, uh, with, with the heinous, uh, individuals, um, the, the, the true evil people. Um, and, and that homicide sergeant said, you know what? Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget this. I'm going to, I say, I'm never going to forget it. I'll butcher it here in a little bit, but, uh, he basically says that in that moment, you're all business, your only job and your only desire Mm -hmm. is to, uh, is to bring about justice and, and, uh, get closure for either, uh, the victim in the case of, of sex crimes, uh, where the victim is still alive or in the case of homicide, uh, to bring closure for that victim's family. And so you don't, you know, the, the movie scene of the cop coming across the table and bashing the guy's face into the, into the interview table, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, because you, you do flip a switch, whether you, whether or not you have to stand outside that interview room door and tell yourself, okay, time and a place right now, let's get answers. Uh, or you just do it. Uh, you know, you're on autopilot and you walk in there and you know, okay, let's, let's have this, have this conversation, um, uh, and, and kind of get to the bottom of it. Um, so man, I, I, uh, thank you for, for sharing, uh, uh those two experiences. I, uh, can only, yeah. can only imagine that it's, it's difficult to, to bring those up and relive those. And, uh, here you are having to go to court, uh, not, uh, hopefully not too much longer, yeah. but here you are still having to go to court over something that happened, uh, five years ago. Um, I made mention that I don't know if, if that's what you wanted to do when you signed up, but, uh, Moses, when, when you went into the yeah. Academy, what was, what was your goal? Were you just, were you going to be, yeah. uh, were you going to be colors? Were you going to be, you know, uh, uh, one crash 32 or were yeah. you yeah. <laughs> Mom, daddy bowl and baby bull or, or what was your, uh, I, what was your goal? <laughs> Actually, I was crashed for uh, a few a few months. Okay, I was uh, I was for Crash Eleven out of Hollenbeck, uh, where we had one of the oldest gangs uh, known as the White Pants. Uh, I was uh, assigned to, but in any event, um, you know, my goal was to become a detective, and just like you said, once you become a detective, you you want to become a homicide detective, and that's the route I was pursuing. Uh, but um, one month into my rank of detective. The supervisor working sex crimes approached me and said, Hey, I would like to work sex crimes. And she sold it to me because she said, Sex crimes is like working homicide, except your victims are alive. And you have to be very into picking up details and being very thorough. And, and she gave me all this uh, you know, information, and I was sold. I said, Okay, I'm in. And, I, and that's where it all started. I started working sex crimes uh, from there on. And a little bit, I, you know, when I started to investigate, crimes against children and then homicide. I really never saw myself as a homicide detective, but then I went, wait a minute, this is a homicide. I'm talking about this is uh, uh, the homicide that nobody wants to work, nobody wants to investigate. So, uh, so yeah, that was my ultimate goal is to become one. But uh, little did I know that uh, I was going to become a subject matter expert in this area. And uh, here we are. And what I wanted to say uh, additionally to this is that uh, after, you know, Jonathan and now Ruby, you know, 
at the end of October, you know, what's our very next holiday? It's, it's Thanksgiving. And then shortly after that, it's New Year's. I mean, it's Christmas. And then New Year's are coming back and back. Let me tell you something. I could not, for the life of me, uh, snap out of it. I, I, I noticed I was uh, kind of withdrawing from the family when we have large gatherings. I just couldn't get into it. I just couldn't get into the holiday spirit. And uh, and that's when I realized that maybe it was time to, you know, to move on to a different assignment. But but then I heard a retired uh, sergeant from the LA County Sheriff's Department speak. And when he spoke at this particular training, I was really moved by his experiences. Uh, he suffered a personal loss of his son while he was investigating uh, similar crimes that I was and uh, when he spoke and he talked about his experience I approached him afterwards I said sir you know what I was contemplating uh, quitting this unit and moving on but you've given me a greater resolve to continue to fight this good fight so that gave me another uh, four or five years more to to fight this uh, once before I retired but later that same year in 2016 in, in December I got my youngest sexual assault victim I ever had. And uh, you're not going to believe this, and your, your listeners won't believe, won't believe this either. But my youngest victim was somewhere between four weeks and six weeks old of being born, where she was sexually assaulted, to the point where she had vaginal terrors and anal terror. And it was all caught on video and audio. And I had to watch this junk over and over and hear her scream. And here, this and this guy doing all this evil things with his hands, and uh, it was just awful. Uh, so you can imagine, I, I was, uh, um, yeah, these cases, these heavy duty cases back to back, uh, really uh, began to take a toll on me. And to the point where um, I, I stopped, I thought I was having a heart attack, and so I got rushed to the hospital. and Thankfully, it wasn't a heart attack, but it was just my blood pressure was through the roof, and so it, it made me like a heart attack. And I was gone for about two, two and a half weeks before I came back to work. And I'll show you a quick story. My first thing back, Kevin, my first thing back walking into police headquarters, I'm walking into the lobby. I even, I'm on, I, mean, I even entered headquarters later than usual when I when I arrived. So as I'm walking into police headquarters, which is in a huge building, you know, 12 floors and tons of people, I see this lady talking to the lobby officer in the front desk, and he's saying something to him, which I can't make out, but I hear him say something like this. He says, who are you looking for? Kind of like very rude, to be honest with you. And so that caught my attention, and she turns, she happens to turn, and she sees me, she says, I'm looking for him. And she pointed towards me. She had sunglasses on, so I couldn't make out who it is. She took down her sunglasses and she says, Hi, it's me, Yenny. Do you remember me? And at first glance, uh, I wasn't sure. But then it hit me, yes, I do recognize her. And then to kind of let her know that I do recognize her, I mentioned her mom's name. Your mom's Carmen. She goes, yes. And as soon as I said that, she began to cry. She was a victim when I first met her, she was only 14 years of age. Now she was 24. So 10 years later, she comes looking for me. After I closed her case, she was 14 at the time I met her. Her dad had raped her on two occasions. He, his MO was that he would take her out of school, 
uh, take her home, rape her, and bring her back to school. And he would take her out under the premise that he was taking her to the doctor. Um, and but it was it was too so he, he was on, he, this is his own biological daughter. Long story short, in that case, he got convicted right away. I didn't even keep that case long enough because he manned up and took a plea deal and went to prison. So normally I keep my victims, my cases for a very long time. So I, I'm able to develop a, a, some sort of rapport and you know bond and with them. And, but this one, at least I didn't even think I did because this case resolved off pretty quickly. So fast forward 10 years later, I feel for the very first time, just as I described, and she starts to cry. And I take her up to my office in the interview room and I said, what's wrong? What's the matter? And the very first question is this, Kevin, out of her mouth. She said, does the pain ever go away? And this is why uh, it's important who gets the case and it's important why the detectives are, are very sensitive to our victims. And so I remember t- telling her early on when I first met her that I was so proud of her that I think she was, that, you know, if I had a daughter, I, I wish um, I, uh, she, my daughter would be like her because I just thought she was bright, uh, beautiful, and she was valuable. And I told her back then, I wish I had a magic wand to make everything good, but I don't. But what I do have is a, a heart that cares, and I'm going to give you my best service I can. And so... So this is why she reached out to me because when she asked me that question, does the pain ever go away? I began to tell her a story about, I have this scar on my hand. It's a, it's a, where I suffered a cut when I was a kid. Well, that cut got infected and I almost, literally almost lost my hand because I let it get to the point where a mountain of coast grew and it was really bad infected. But eventually I got help. I got operated on. I got medication. The scar is still there. I'll never forget what happened. I know how, how it happened, and it's a memory that never go away. But my hand is healed now. I, I could I could use it. I could do it. And the same way with what she went through. She'll never forget it. The scar is always going to be there. But you will get to a place where you become, you go from a survivor to a conqueror. And uh, so as I began to tell her that, and she began to cry and thank you. And then I noticed she, she may have had some suicidal tendencies. So I triaged her for that. And she did make some statements that she wanted to kill herself so I called our mental health professionals and they took her away and admitted her on a 72 hour hold and she called me three days later and said thank you thank you so much because I knew you would do that I needed that help and I feel so much better and and now I'm uh, on the road to recovery so all that the way everything went down you know you know I explained to her too you know this is my first day back from being gone for two and a half weeks on medical leave yeah, and she had no idea where to find me, and she just said I knew it was somewhere in police headquarters, and she needed where to start. So all the things lined up, and so you just never know. So, so my word, I share this story because I, I want you to know that you just may never know the impact you're going to have on someone's life, and years later they may just show up again in your life uh, for even a greater purpose. So yeah, we got our justice back when this happened but you know what we literally saved her life again 10 years later and so that's why you know treat your victims with that mindset that you're you're investigating the most important case there's as a matter of fact i i had that saying on my card and oftentimes i would have the victims read it out loud so they could see and i tell hey i'm your personal detective you call me anytime if you are thinking 
call me, you call me. Don't hesitate. If I could pick up, I'll pick up. If I don't pick up, I'll call you when I can. But you matter to me, and we're gonna we're gonna do the best we can. So that's that's what's giving me a, a you know the greater result. When I saw that the way it happened, you know, it gives. And I hope it does give all your listeners, especially those in law enforcement, a greater result to continue the fight of the fight. The people need us. We need each other. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and therein, I mean, not to uh, uh, diminish any other form of investigation, but in speaking with one of the uh, the commanders at my agency prior to uh, becoming a detective, um, there's there's a, a a good reason behind being an auto theft detective or uh, or a property crimes detective. Um, but in in my mind, again, not to not to diminish any of my friends that are out there listening to this or anybody that's that's uh, you know a property uh, detective, but I almost feel as though when it comes to things like sex crimes uh, and and especially with homicide, um, as with family persons crimes in general, um, I, I I think that there's a, a greater personal impact, um, uh, not not just on the part of the victim, but on the part of the, the detective and the officers involved with the investigation. Um, somebody's car gets stolen. It, it, it has no bearing on me. I, I take that report and I move on with my day. Um, somebody's dignity gets stolen as they are brutally raped, you know, in an alleyway or at a college party, whatever the case may be that, that hits differently for me. Um, and and I think that you you have these lasting impacts where ten years later, um, you know, here she comes to to and just happens to like you said out of the blue as you come back from two weeks of medical leave, you know, it just happens to to find you and uh, and and uh, and thank you for uh, for saving her life, and then you saved her life again by getting her the the help that she needed with uh, with mental health. Um, uh, again, you you just like as you said. I, I can't put it in any other words The you never know the lasting impact that you will have on, on somebody. So those of you that are out there that are cops or becoming cops, um, uh, just remember that, 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 uh, treat everybody with respect and, and it may, it may come around to, to surprise you, you know, where you get, um, uh, in the future there. I, I, yeah. I do want to dive into, um, uh, take a few minutes before we, we close, um, not, not no time constraints, not a few minutes, but I do. I am curious uh, with the the cases that you've investigated um, with with really anybody in Los Angeles County that's in, you know conducted any investigations as of late. Um, there's and I'm fairly ignorant to it being in Arizona, uh, but uh, I do want to talk about this this recall movement for uh, for the deputy attorney uh, Gascon and and kind of what's what's the catalyst behind that and what what's going on with that movement and and what's the uh the why behind it and in your episode with randy sutton you talked about that uh you know a gangbanger uh shoots and kills an lapd officer and da gascone says hey we're only going to charge him for uh the homicide we're not going to add in the furtherance of a criminal street gang we're not going to add in the gun charge we're not going to add in this this and this uh what is uh uh well, I mean, what what's it what's it like conducting these investigations under under a DA who seemingly won't uh, go forward with charges and uh, and what's being done about it? 
Well, you know what? Uh, I, I Excuse retired. Me, di- district attorney, not yeah. deputy attorney. Sorry, district attorney. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah district attorney. Uh, I retired uh, first, and then he became elected. So, but after, by, by speaking to the detectives that are working cases now, it is very stressful. It is very demoralizing knowing that you, you have a, a district attorney newly elected who is favoring criminals uh, more so than he is the victims and, and advocating for victims. Um, and you're absolutely right. He he initiated and instituted a new special directives, he calls them. There's, there's 10 of them. I think there's more now. Um, but in, in the summary, some of these directives are directing his prosecutors that not, not to file any more special enhancements or special allegations on any case moving forward. The ones that were already filed on and going through the court process, he had ordered them to dismiss those special circumstances and allegations. However, thankfully, uh, the local uh, association of deputy district attorneys in Allen County filed, an inju- filed a lawsuit seeking an injunction uh, from a civil judge, and we were granted an injunction, and that actually put a stop to DESCO's efforts for dismissing the current cases that are being filed. However, it doesn't stop him from using his discretion on new cases coming up, how they're going to be filed, and that's the the, the danger that we're facing. And as, as you well know, shootings are way up, homicides are way up, not only here locally, but across the nation. Absolutely. Because George, George Castellan is not the only quote-unquote progressive uh, DA that's uh, in office. We have many of them throughout the country, in Chicago and New York. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure about your state, but they're, they're all over the place. Uh, Portland, uh, Washington, and it goes on and on. So, yeah, the, the emphasis is now, George Gascon believes a year prior to him being uh, elected, uh, he, he, he was campaigning and uh, he was being interviewed by a professor at USC. And this video is out there on YouTube. You can Google it. It was called A, Converse, a, a Conversation with George Gascon. And during that interview with this professor from USC, he actually uttered these words. He says, I don't believe the government should be punishing people. It's like, what? He's running for DA. No, now he is a DA. And he doesn't believe in punishing people. Uh, his philosophy is that uh, anybody that goes to prison should only go to prison for no longer than 15 years. And they should be paroled. Because he thinks that uh, keeping them longer will actually harm them and create a higher rate of recidivism. But it's, it's further from the truth. Some of these people cannot be rehabilitated, period. You just can't. Someone who commits murder, someone who kills children or rapes children, uh, the worst of the worst, they're not going to be able to be uh, rehabilitated. There's no way. Uh, so he cites some science that that's what science shows. But his science is not peer-reviewed. It's not published. It's just George Soros uh, funded studies that have been exposed for what they are, and that is, you know, totally false. It's a false narrative. Um, which reminds me, uh, during the one-year anniversary of George Floyd, I, I was interviewed by our local Fox 11 uh, stations, known as the DLA in the morning. Uh, anyway, and they had an opposing side as well. They had somebody from Black Lives Matter, an organizer, and he actually said that. He believes, or Black Lives Matter believes, that 
the police officers are responsible for the criminalization of people of color in the community. And I was like, what? Well, off camera, I challenged them and I said, wait a minute, you mean to tell me? So I, I introduced myself. I said, would you go on camera with me to, to have this discussion? And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't have a discussion. But he actually walked away. I said, well, hey, but here we are. I said, wait, wait a second. So I investigate crimes against children, physical abuse, sex abuse, and I went on and on. I said, you mean to tell me that all those people that committed these crimes against children, that we police officers were responsible for that? And he didn't know what to say. He just he just walked away and didn't want to engage. But but that's the mindset that, that we're dealing with. And let me tell you folks, there's no way we're ever going to reason with someone like that. We, we, just, we just can't reason with them. They're going to have this, this, this mindset, this way of thinking that we're not going to be able to change. But we can't let that uh, discourage us from continuing to do our thing. And this is why it's so important. My message now is, yes, I'm really involved in this recall movement. I'm, I'm also uh, helping Eric Early to uh, gain a seat uh, or gain his uh, position as the California State Attorney General, uh, because we need to start electing people who are going to put people first, support law enforcement, and not be afraid to do so publicly and, and courageously take steps to support law enforcement and put criminals left. Right now, it's the opposite. Right now, it's more, it's more popular to defend and get behind the criminals and the accused than it is to get behind police officers. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I do believe in my heart of heart that the majority of our citizens throughout this country love and support the police. The only problem is they are not the ones creating all the noise, all the, uh, you know, that being as vocal as the those that are anti-police, those that, you know, are following the narrative that police are racist and, and they're all bad and criminals. Um, so that's that's my two cents worth as far as the political arena is that we need to start electing people that, um, you know, are going to put people first, support yeah. law enforcement and put criminals last. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And the the uh, the majority of people out there who do support us, the silent uh, majority, uh, it, it would almost seem as though every time they they speak up and and try to come to the defense of of uh, of police of uh, human decency, that they are immediately and violently shut down, um, and you know called whatever multitude of of slurs and slander and and uh, you know all sorts of names. Um, uh, by the media and by politicians and and by the the people who are out there uh, being very loud um, and very vocal. Uh, indeed, still to this day, there is uh, there are protests on the streets of Los Angeles with uh, with uh, Antifa and BLM clashing with uh, with people just going about their day. You know, trying to walk down the sidewalk. You can't even walk down the sidewalk without getting you know hit in the side of the damn head with a with a protest sign, it would seem, um, which, which leads me, uh, uh, one thing I, I was extremely curious about. Um, I hear, I hear positive things about Sheriff Villanueva. I don't hear very many positive things. Uh, in fact, I don't hear positive things about chief Moore. Um, uh, for those of you unfamiliar, chief Moore, Los Angeles police department, Sheriff Villanueva, uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's office. Um, what, uh, 
as somebody who's interacted with him, and I believe you've interviewed him as well. Um, what, uh, how can I say this politically? Oh, fuck it. What's the deal with Chief Moore? <laughs> like, <what? laughs> well, that's the thing. You know what? Um, the little respect I had for him, uh, you know, because I told him when I had him on my podcast uh, back in October, I told him that he was, he was, you know, newly selected for this. And I go, you know, perfect time. We need a leader like you. I was getting behind him and, and supporting him because, uh, I, I, you know, at the time, this is before even George Gascon was elected. And I, in fact, I even asked him about, hey, are you going to be um, advocating for your officers when Gascon tries to go back and open? That was another thing Gascon was doing. He wants to go back and open prior officer-involved shootings that have already been investigated, adjudicated, and no findings were, were made as far as any criminal liability. And he wants to go back and give it a second or third look to see if something was missed, to see if he could prosecute a police officer. So I remember asking him about that, and, and uh, you know, he said, he, you know, I forget his response, but it, it wasn't anything that gave me any indication that uh, was telling me he, he was for Gaskell, per se, or his, his methodology. But I also asked him about, you know, you know him taking a knee uh, with Black Lives Matter during the civil unrest. And I actually called it, you know, Urban warfare, really, that's what it really was. It was, you know, it wasn't when they use the term protesters or whatever, that, that's not protesting. That's, that's flat out committing criminal acts, burning, looting, stealing, uh, attacking police officers. That, that's, that's not protesting. That's flat out criminal behavior. But in any event, um, you know, I asked him if he was going to authorize his officers to make arrests. He said he was, you know, for these uh, looters, these, these, unlawful uh, activist, but uh, in recent weeks um, he showed up with George Gascon at a press conference and in that press conference he said he's uh, pretty much applauding the DA and standing with him and uh, he wanted to uh, 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 you know, sh show some support because he thought that there were some rumors uh, letting the criminals and the gamers know that uh, there are no legal consequences to their actions, and he wanted to set those rumors straight. He, he's out of his mind. The special directives actually say no more gang enhancements, no more use of a gun enhancements, uh, any of those things. And he actually did away with the deputy district attorney, I mean, the, the DA's office uh, specializing in unit known as hardcore gang unit. That unit was seasoned, professional uh, uh, prosecutors that prosecuted gangs and uh, gang members for doing the most heinous crimes, murders, execution style, uh, narcotics, trafficking, human trafficking, you name it, anything that the gang members were being uh, charged with or prosecuted, this hardcore gang unit would be responsible for doing it. Well, he disbanded that. I mean, it'll go on and on on some of the things he did. Again, every action he's done is more in favor of the criminals, and he's abandoned the victims and the victims' families. That's why the recall movement is strong. Uh, we just announced that we have over 100,000 signatures. We must gather uh, just shy of um, 600,000 signatures to qualify for the ballot. So we're moving in the right direction, and... Uh, Anybody that wants to learn more about that, they can go to recallgeorgegascon.com 
learn how they could uh, donate, get involved, uh, and uh, get this guy out of office. But this is not just here, folks. It's happening all over the country. And I hope that you get involved in your local area to, to uh, get rid of people like this and then bring in the right people. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've said often that you're not going to legislate an end to evil, and you're certainly not going to get rid of it by fucking ignoring it uh, and by, by eliminating. Enhanced sentencing exists for a reason. Um, uh, you, you, people want to talk about a broken criminal justice system. Uh, we need, while I agree there are aspects of the criminal justice system that need to be fixed, and they're probably not the same as, uh, uh, you know, probably have the different ideas as how to fix it than, than some other people. Um, but eliminating the criminal justice system and getting rid of these enhanced sentences, uh, are not going to help you. You're going to put these people, uh, into prison for a shorter amount of time, if at all. But if they're in there for a shorter amount of time, um, uh, they're, they're just going to come out and probably go right back to it. I mean, I, I have met several people who have gone through prison and come out, uh, uh, much better uh, individuals. Um, the unfortunate reality is that recidivism rates are real uh, and they exist. Um, it's a quantifiable measure, uh, you know, measured number. Um, and saying that, oh, yeah, if you went and murdered this person in a shootout or, hey, it was a drive-by shooting, you didn't mean to kill the six-year-old, so we won't charge you with that. Like, are you kidding me? Um, you know, it was... I'm under the same uh, circuit court as California. Um, and so oftentimes what happens in California bleeds over to the other states uh, um, uh, under that same uh, federal circuit court. But um, I can certainly hope that we, do, we don't go the, the same way with, uh, with the district attorney. Um, we are seeing some, some frustrations within our, our county attorney's offices um, where they're, they're not charging things due to, uh, quote, no reasonable likelihood of conviction, end quote, um, which is a made-up phrase. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm, not a pros- I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not going to pretend to understand how to do their job. But there's, there's, there are, uh, it would seem, the beginnings of some of the similar frustrations that, that y'all are experiencing out in California as investigators. Uh, uh, so yeah. it's, it is important uh, to everybody listening to, to get involved uh, at the local level. Um, I am curious, Moses, what's the city council's uh, position on this? I mean, the city council kind of, the, the fact of the matter is, is that police chiefs uh, yeah. work for city well, councilmen. It, so we'll put it, th- yeah, we'll put it this way. Uh, the mayor of Los Angeles actually endorsed uh, George Gascon. So that, that says it all. Yeah. There's your answer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. But you know what? I'm very uh, hopeful. Uh, there's the total of 88 cities in Los Angeles County. Uh, this far, at least 22 of them, maybe more since uh, this week uh, began, at least 22 of them already uh, symbolically issued a vote of no confidence on George Gascon. So the momentum is, is picking up. Uh, people are getting frustrated with his uh, directives, his policies. And uh, so, yeah. So I'm very hopeful. You know, California is known to be a very strong democratic state, but you know, right now there's recall for Governor Newsom, recall for Gascon. Um, so people are waking up, and uh, that that gives me a sense of optimism, a sense of hope. And so, you know, if anybody wants to reach me, uh, I can be reached at uh, Detective Moses at thelawgroup.com. So that's Detective Moses at the letter D, the word law, the word group.com. 
Um, I now work for this law firm where we advocate for victims of sexual assault and sexual abuse. Um, and my boss is a former prosecutor from the LA County DA's office. That's how we met. And so we've been advocating for victims of sexual assault uh, on the civil side. But because of his background as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, and my background as a sex crime detective, we've actually been advocating for victims here in California, in LA County, uh, as it relates to George Gascon's uh, fiasco. We've been advocating for the victims' uh, victims' rights under the Marcy's Law. Marcy's Law is the Victims' Bill of Rights that's been uh, codified here in the California Constitution. Uh, it's a series of laws that victims have, and we've been uh, doing our best to enforce those laws uh, in the process that these victims are going through the criminal justice system. Uh, because uh, one of the things that George Gascon has done, he has stripped away the ability for a prosecutor to advocate for the victims. So that's why many of the many of the prosecutors and detectives reached out to us, and we've been helping victims pro bono, representing them to make sure that their rights are being enforced and not being ignored, which uh, Gascon has tried to do. So we've been very successful in doing that, but uh, sadly we can't be in every courtroom and every. So there are some cases that went unrepresented and uh, unfortunately um, didn't have the outcomes that we would want. So that's that's my new calling in life. It's, you know, I'm working for this law firm and uh, the fight still continues. I'm doing this on a, on a you know a post retirement. It's more like for me, it's a more of a repurpose to reinvent myself. And that's one good thing about you know you as your uh, you you pursue your career in sex crimes. When you develop this expertise, that might lead you to other, uh, you know, avenues uh, later on in your life that, that could lead you to something like this. And, and so um, right now there's this law in California known as AB 218, the civil law that allows victims of childhood sex abuse to sue the offender and anyone else that may have played a, played a role without any statute of limitations. It removes any statute of limitations, any time limit for three-year period. It expires at the end of a 23-year look-back window, and many other states have it. I believe Nevada just enacted one of them. New York is about to end their three-year window, and there are other states throughout the country that do have these uh, these laws available now for victims of uh, sex abuse. So I would encourage your listeners to look up uh, similar laws in their states to see if uh, they could tap into that law and reach out to a local um, uh well, a law firm to see if they have a case and if they need any help with that and they could always out to me and I could guide them in the right direction. But yeah, that's what we're doing now. So it's, uh, you know, the fight continues and uh, we're still doing God's work, but in a different capacity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Still carrying on uh, that, that righteous work as, uh, as the right hand uh, of God, if you will. And, and just, uh, well, like you said, fighting the good fight. Uh, and Moses, for people that want to listen to your podcast, it's on KABC AM 790, uh, uh, which uh, I, again, just, just head over to uh, to the website, head over, um, or you can, I, I think you can get to it yeah. off, of, off of your Instagram page, right? Detective Moses Castillo? Yeah, you can get it there. You can also get it at uh, Spotify or your Apple podcast app, or you could just uh, go to the KABC website. It's called The Blue Line Podcast with Detective Moses Castillo. Um, and uh, yeah, you can, you can check that out. And, uh, you know, I'm very sensitive to the fact that somebody listening to this may 
know someone or maybe they are themselves a victim of, of sex abuse and maybe they've never shared it because the stats are, are way sad. Uh, you know, one out of every three females are victims of sex abuse and one out of every six males are victims of sex abuse. Um, so if that's you and you want to reach out, please reach out. Uh, I'll direct you in the right place even if, I, if we can't help you. But uh, the important thing is, if nothing else, if, if, if we can't help you, we'll, we'll direct you to the right place to get some counseling, some therapy, to get you to a place where you could thrive and heal. Good, good. Moses, last question for you, man. Um, uh, you have a, a microphone to the world. Uh, what does the world need to hear from Moses Castillo? You know, I believe that everyone, and I mean everyone, has a special gift and a calling. And sometimes that gift can be wrapped around uh, in, a, in a box and it's staged and it's being unused. And in that box, some of us have more wrapping paper than others. Some have more tape. And we need to be able to get to a place where we find a good mentor, a good support system that will help you develop as a person, as a leader, and develop that gift and remove that wrapping so that that gift can be a blessing to others. And I think uh, some people get stuck. Uh, in their life, uh, in, you know, in a place where they just feel like they're not moving forward or anything. So I would encourage you, uh, discover that gift. When you have it, use it. Use it for the greater good. Use it for a greater cause. Uh, live for a greater reward because that's what it's all about. Uh, reject being passive, accept responsibility, and lead courageously. Uh, that If we do that and we put your faith, family first, everything else uh, falls into place. I couldn't say anything better myself, man. Um, Moses, I do really appreciate your time. I, uh, I, uh, as a former resident of California, uh, uh, but of Orange County, but nonetheless, I do appreciate your 30 years of service to the people of Los Angeles uh, and to the Los Angeles Police Department and for being uh, uh, one of the good ones uh, with the the battles that you fought out there, man. Um, uh and and still well, thanks, and still continuing that fight. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate the opportunity and hope uh, your connection. Absolutely, absolutely, as do I. This has been another episode of Blue Line Millennial. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the road.